The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 107. This begins book five of the Psalter. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God, and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze, and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. Then he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that he may yield a fruitful harvest. 
He also blesses them, and they multiply greatly. And he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in their wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Today we're in Deuteronomy 31, it's verses 1 through 8. This is entitled, Then Moses Called Joshua. Before I read you our sermon verses, I'd like to let you all know, uh, if you have not met him, you need to meet him right now. He'll be back again next year, we hope, as Russell. He's been here for a month, and he showed up when I told everybody, don't show up. I have COVID. I want to just be at church. And if you've had COVID, come. If you haven't, please don't come. Most of you obeyed. One person didn't. Um, but Russell, I had no phone number for. And so he showed up, and he stayed anyway. And he got a little sick, but I think he didn't have COVID, right? What's that? He's fine. Okay, but he has come down here to visit for a month and he has spent his Saturdays in the projects, helping people out down there and praying with them. So this is somebody that needs to be commended. And if you haven't met him, make sure you meet him on the way out today and then we'll see him again, hopefully next year. And the poor guy, when he's not here, he is a neighbor to Joe Biden. Yeah, very, very sad for you. We hope that you can survive the next few years of that. All right. We're in uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 1. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. This sermon was typed on 22 November the Monday prior to Thanksgiving. What are we thankful for? I must admit, I don't express my thankfulness enough. He gives us rain, which I am always thanking him for. If we get rain, I am thanking the Lord. But other than that, I fail to thank him for everything he gives us. He gives us cool, breezy days. He gives us marvelous moons that radiate out a soft glow for our evening walks. And he gives us so much more. Every good and kind blessing we could imagine comes our way, but we often fail to acknowledge them when they do because we get caught up in the trials, miseries, pains, woes, and sadnesses of life. That isn't unexpected, 
But wouldn't it help us if we were able to be grateful at the same time as being miserable? To varying degrees, some of us are, but life's troubles have a way of robbing our joy and our ability to be grateful. Paul gives us constant admonitions about how to overcome these things and to remain strong in the Lord and fixed on Him and His hand of grace that provides us with so very much. I don't know how people can remain positive and not be in the Word of God. You know me. You know that's a true statement. I'm not saying that to prompt you to read the Word of God, but I wish you would. Without the constant reminders from it, I would probably be the most miserable person on this planet along with about 8 billion other people in the same boat. But we have this word. Let us take advantage of it, think on it, and apply its precepts to our lives. Jesus overcame this world. In him, we have overcome it. Let us never lose sight of the bigger picture in him. Our text verse comes from Colossians chapter 1. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word of Colossians so closely matches so much of what is presented in our passage today that when I went looking for a text verse after typing the sermon, I had to think Paul must have just read this passage in Deuteronomy over breakfast. He really sums up much of what is conveyed to us here in Deuteronomy 31, but he does that elsewhere as well. The book of Ephesians must have been written while he was reading Deuteronomy. It is also just filled with hints of our passage today. There is Israel, and there is faith in Christ. Sometimes one is given to show us things to avoid, and sometimes one is given to show us what to do. But all of it is to reveal to us Jesus, or our life in Him. It is all centered on Him. What a treasure we have in the pages of Scripture. I hope you will enjoy what is presented today. As is so often the case, I thoroughly enjoyed researching it and typing it up. This word is a never-ending source of delight. That's for sure. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, he will be with you. It's all of our verses, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. The words are unusual and a bit perplexing. Literally, Vayalek Moshe vedaber et hadevarim ha'ele el kal Yisrael. And walked Moses and spoke the words, thee, these, unto all Israel. The curiosity hinges on the word halak, or to walk. It is not a common way of referring to Moses' discourses. Normally, it just says, and Moses said, or something like that. 
The last time Moses was mentioned, meaning the starting of a new discourse, was in chapter 29. Here's what it said there. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, which is just a standard way it introduces him, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Both times, then and now, it refers to all Israel. The Greek translation says, and Moses completed speaking all these words. In this, it would signify that two of the letters of the Hebrew were actually transposed. Instead of vayelech, it would have said vekal, as in Deuteronomy 32, verse 45. That is a possibility two letters may have been transposed, because a new direction will now be taken. Another possibility is that the word walk here is simply a way of introducing a new thought. Moses has spoken to all Israel, and he continues on his walk speaking to all of Israel. I like that better. I don't like when people just blame things on transposed letters and mistakes and things like that. Jameson Fawcett Brown takes this as a way of summing up everything by saying, it is probably that this rehearsal of the law extended over several successive days. And it might be the last and most important day on which the return of Moses to the place of assembly is specifically noted. Hence, he walked. Whatever. Whatever the actual meaning of the unusual phrase, the discourse from Moses does continue. It continues in a new direction, and his words continue to be spoken to all Israel. As such, verse 2, and he said to them, being third person plural, it is an address to all of the people collectively, all Israel, and individually, you all. Verse 2 continues, I am 120 years old today. The Hebrew bears a very common idiom, son of a hundred and twenty years I am today. The reason for stating this is debated, and whether it is to be taken as a literal statement is as well. Some find him saying this to be an indication that today is his birthday. Some connected to the span of his life literally being one hundred and twenty years. Some figuratively, as if it is a rounded number. I'm 119, but I'm 120. I do that all the time. I'm always exaggerating things. It seems unlikely it is a rounded number, but rather that a point about his age is being made. In Acts 7.23, it says of Moses, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. In Exodus 16.35, it says, And the children of Israel ate manna, 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This would then divide his life into three segments of 40 years each. The first would be until he was grown and fled to Midian. The second would be 40 years in Midian. The third would be 40 years leading Israel. However, these cannot be exactly 40 years to the day because the manna actually ends after Moses' death, which is recorded in Joshua 5.12. But the division of his life is remarkable in that it was based upon three periods of 40 years. It is also the same time frame noted in the unusual words of Genesis chapter 6. There it said, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh and his days shall be 120 years. The meaning of the words of Genesis 6 is debated. 
Some see them as the length of time that man would live from that point on. But nothing in scripture goes on to support this. What seems most likely is that the words are defining the period until the flood. That is how Young's literal translation of the Bible translates it. He says, and Jehovah saith, my spirit doth not strive in man to the age. In their erring they are flesh, and his days have been an hundred and twenty years. Meaning from this day, a hundred and twenty years from now, I'm ending the life of man on earth. This seems likely. The Lord sees the wickedness of the world and sets a time for its coming destruction of 120 years. As Noah is the focus of the surrounding narrative, it is then accepted that this was the time that he was given to preach to the world. That's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, before its end was accomplished. In other words, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So for 120 years, he was telling people, you better wake up because the end is coming. If this is so, then there is a reasonable pattern between the two, Noah's time of preaching and the life of Moses, who represents the law, are both witnesses to the world of God's impending judgment. That would follow well with the signification of the numbers 40 and 3. 40 times 3 is 120. Bollinger defines 120 saying, it is made up of three 40s. 3 times 40 equals 120. Applied to time, therefore, it signifies a divinely appointed period of probation. Hence, the years of Moses are given to define the time of the law itself. The entire time of the law is summed up in the 120 years life of Moses. From a human aspect, however, they also bear on the state of the man himself. Verse 2 continues, I can no longer go out and come in. Lo ukal od laset velavo. No able again to go forth and to come in. This takes the reader back to Numbers 27, where the Lord spoke to Moses about his demise. The section was an anticipatory look at the event, and it uses the same terminology there. Whereas Moses could no longer execute his duties, another, meaning Joshua, was selected to replace him. That's found in Numbers 27. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother was gathered for in the wilderness of Zin during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Later in his life, Joshua will then repeat the sentiment. Here's what it says in Joshua 14. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. The meaning is that in one's coming in, there is strength and vitality within the walls of one's home. And in one's going out, there will be health and vigor, and there will be strength for the day's labors. Moses sees that the years are catching up to him, but this doesn't mean he was not fit. And exactly that is said of him upon his death from Deuteronomy 34. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor 
diminished. The word translated as natural vigor signifies moisture or freshness. Some attribute this to his virility, and that is a reasonable interpretation of the rare word that is used there. Despite this, his ability to satisfactorily execute his duties had come to its end. And more. Verse 2 continues, Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The basis for this statement should be returned to as well. In Numbers 20, verses 7 through 9, it said the following, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. The command was given to demonstrate a point concerning the coming of Christ. Water had been brought from the rock once already in Exodus. At that time, Moses was told to strike the rock, and he did. In that, water issued forth. That was given as a picture of life issuing from the punishment that Christ received. The second time, in Numbers, both Moses and Aaron were simply to speak. The verb there was plural, Moses and Aaron, to the rock, and water would issue forth. Thus, the water was to come forth not through any work, but through the word of faith. It was to be a picture of salvation based upon faith in Christ alone. Wherever the word of faith in Christ is spoken, the Spirit will issue forth, but not by deeds of the law, rather by faith alone. Everything about that account anticipated Christ. Everything. By merely the spoken word of the lawgiver and the high priest in the presence of the rod, the rock was expected to yield its water. Everything at that time, all of it was seen to be a picture of Christ. The lawgiver, Christ. The high priest, Christ. The rock, Christ. The rod, Christ. The water, the spirit of Christ. Everything looked to prefigure Christ and the grace that issues from him. And this is how it is. The giving of the new covenant based on the fulfillment of the law, along with the sacrificial work of the high priest, yields forth the spirit. The typology was set. However, this is not what happened. Again from Numbers 20. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Because of his disobedience, thus destroying the typology of Christ and his work, the sentence was pronounced. Numbers twenty twelve. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. But the actions of Moses and Aaron would have been known to the Lord prior to them doing this. And more, the Lord could have pardoned Moses, but another set typology had to be fulfilled as well. The inheritance cannot come through the law. That is seen in the words, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Hayarden, or the descender. The Jordan River is a type of Christ. It flows from the snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon, which means sacred. It travels along the border of Canaan, and it terminates at the Salt Sea. It is a picture of Christ descending from heaven, the sacred place, living out his incarnation and dying. 
However, being the Salt Sea, it is a continued picture of his incorruption. From the Salt Sea, the waters evaporate, picturing Christ's resurrection and ascension, his return to heaven. In this, the Jordan is the dividing line between the world and the land of promise. One must cross over or through the Jordan, meaning Christ, in order to enter the promised inheritance. But the law has no part in the inheritance, as Paul says from Galatians 3. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, meaning after the time of Abraham and the promise given to Abraham, was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. As Moses is the giver of the law and thus emblematic of the law, he needed to die outside of the inheritance in order to maintain the set typology. John Gill clearly got this several hundred years ago. He lived during the 1600s when he said, this work was reserved for Joshua, a type of Christ, not Moses and his law or obedience to it is what introduces any into the heavenly Canaan, only Jesus and his righteousness. The Lord is working in typology in order to reveal himself and his work to the world. As the law cannot obtain the inheritance, then someone else must bring the people in. Everything must fit in order to maintain the typology of Christ. That continues to be seen in the next words. Verse 3, the Lord your God himself crosses over before you. The words are emphatic. Yehovah Elohecha hu over lefanecha. Yehovah your God, he crosses over before your face. And more. The words are now in the singular, you, Israel. The emphasis is given as a complete contrast to Moses. Moses, you shall not cross over the Jordan. Instead, the Lord, he shall cross over. The words clearly speak of the Lord being the one to bring Israel into the inheritance. The Lord, the true lawgiver, is the primary cause of what will occur. As such, verse 3 continues, he will destroy these nations from before you. Again, the words are emphatic. Who? Yashmid et hagoim ha'ele melefanecha. He will destroy the nations, the these, from before your face. The Lord has said to me, Moses, you will not cross over, but the Lord, he, he will. And it is he who will destroy those who possess the inheritance. Israel, trust in the Lord. The words are set, they are fixed, and they are given as a guarantee. Verse 3 continues, and you shall dispossess them. It is a single word in the Hebrew, vivrishtam, and you, Israel, shall dispossess them. The Lord will go over before Israel. He will destroy the enemy, and Israel shall take what they possessed. Everything is a work of the Lord. And yet, verse 3 continues, Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. There's no conjunction to separate the thoughts, and it is again emphatic. Yehoshua hu over lefanecha ka'ashur deber Yehovah. Joshua, he crosses over before your face, just as spoke Yehovah. Charles Ellicott rightly questions the text right here with these words. This is his 
commentary. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee. Joshua, he shall go over before thee. Can it be accidental that Jehovah and Joshua are spoken of in exactly the same language and that there is no distinguishing conjunction between them? The and of the English version being supplied. Jehovah, he is going over. Joshua, he is going over. Verbally, the two are as much identified as the God who fed me all my life long and to this day, the angel that redeemed me from all evil, citing Genesis 48, 15 and 16. The prophetical truth of this identification is too remarkable to be missed. Said plainly, the same words are used, the same emphasis is provided, and the same thought is conveyed in the two clauses, and yet one speaks of the Lord God, while the other speaks of Joshua. And there is no connecting conjunction. Both thoughts are united as one. As this is so, it is making an absolutely clear picture to consider. For now, Moses continues with, verse 4, And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og. The battles were described in Numbers 21. They occurred east of the Jordan, outside of the promised inheritance. And yet, they allowed Israel experience in battle. But more, they led Israel into a state of conviction in the Lord's abilities. As the battles were victorious, it would bolster Israel's confidence, their trust, and even provide full assurance that the Lord was with them, was guiding them, and would work with them to ensure the battles ahead would also end in victory. These two defeated foes were, verse 4 continues, the kings of the Amorites and their land. It's actually singular in the Hebrew, kings of the Amorite. Thus, it speaks of the nation of people that were defeated. As there are more Amorites, there will be more battles against the people of this nation. However, because of the victory over these, there is the surety that any others that are met will also be defeated. Sihon and Og were great foes, but they stood no chance against the Lord. Verse 4 continues, when he destroyed them. Again, the victory is said to be of the Lord. Even though Israel was in the battle, the ultimate credit belongs to the Lord. Without his hand, they could not have prevailed. With him, they could not be defeated. The same is true with those they would face in Canaan. Verse 5, the Lord will give them over to you. Moses' words now go to the plural. And will give them over, Jehovah, before your, all of you, plural, face. All of those who went into battle would share in the triumph over the foes. The change to the plural would bolster the confidence of even the hesitant. Yes, Israel will prevail, but I shall be a part of the victory. And it is in the victory, verse 5 continues, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. The Hebrew is not a because of this, therefore that. Rather than that you may do to them, it reads, va'asitem lahem, and you shall do to them. The Lord will give them over. Based on that, Israel is to then obediently follow through according to the law. The words and the change from the singular to the plural become understandable when placed by the corresponding clauses from verse 3. Verse 3, it says, he will destroy these nations from before your singular face. Verse 5 says, and the Lord will give them over to you, plural. Verse 3 again, and you, singular, shall dispossess them. 
Verse 5, and you, plural, shall do to them. The words are meticulously and brilliantly chosen to have the most positive effect on the minds of the people, even if the subtlety of them passed right over their heads. It is like a subliminal message that is mentally apprehended even when it may not be consciously understood. It is with this strategically placed and pronounced message that Moses next says, verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Both words carry the meaning of strength, hardening, and so on. Chizku ve'imsu, be strong and be strengthened, or any other such general rendering will do. The idea is that of soldiers. The verbs are plural, fortifying themselves for what lay ahead. The same is true with the next words. Verse 6 continues, do not fear nor be afraid of them. Al-tireu ve'al-ta'arsu mipenehem. Not fear and not be affrighted from their face. It doesn't matter how many there are, how big they are, how battle-worn they appear, and so on. The soldiers of Israel were to not allow such things to affect them in the slightest. Verse 6 going on, For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. Right in the middle of the verse, the words now revert to the second person singular. Moses is referring to Israel, the collective. Further, the words are emphatic, and a verb preceded by an article is used to describe the Lord. A literal translation would be, For Jehovah your God, He, the goer, with you. The people don't need Moses. Rather, they have the one who called Moses, who directed him, and who sustained him. As such, to rely on Moses' presence would be to rely on that which is less than the Lord. It is a lesson way too many in the church need to learn. And knowing this is to find surety. Verse 6 continues, He will not leave you nor forsake you. The words continue in the singular, You, Israel. The Lord will never leave them, nor will he ever abandon them. They have the absolute assurance of this. The problem of defeat will not be because the Lord has left Israel, but only if Israel leaves the Lord. Verse 7, Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Moses is ensuring that Joshua will be fully recognized as his replacement. There could be no conspiracy theories or attempts at usurping his rightful authority because Moses brings him le'ene kal Yisrael, or two eyes, all Israel. In his bringing him forth, he says, verse 7 continues, be strong and of good courage. It is the same words just spoken to the people. In order for a congregation to be encouraged, their leader must first demonstrate his own courage. Be strong and be strengthened. Verse 7 continues, For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. The words bear an emphasis, For you must go with. The words go with are changed to bring in in verse 31-23. Joshua both goes with and he brings in the people. In other words, he is both one of the people and he is also to be the leader of the people. There is no bringing in without first going with. But in his going with, Moses says, verse 7 continues, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Is anybody seeing Jesus in this? I mean, it's as clear as the nose on your face. If you're thinking Jesus, he came with, he brings in, 
and you shall cause them to inherit. It's all about Jesus. Again, this verse bears an emphasis, and you shall cause to inherit it them. Moses emphatically states that Joshua personally will go in, and Joshua personally will cause them to inherit the land. He then is the Lord's instrument in causing these things to be. With this understood, Moses continues, verse 8, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. Like in verse 6, there is an emphasis, and the verb is prefixed by an article, and Jehovah, he, the goer before you. Moses just said that Joshua would cause the people to inherit the land, and yet the Lord is with Joshua. In this, we can see the various causes being relayed. Joshua is the material cause. He is the one who makes the thing, like wood in a table, to be. The formal cause, the design, is the destruction of the enemies. The efficient cause, what brings it about, is the Lord's presence working on behalf of Joshua. And the final cause, the purpose, is the obtaining of the inheritance. Now say that to yourself and just replace Joshua with Jesus. You'll get it. Everything is working towards the goal. Nothing will thwart the goal. And Moses provides the assurance of it. Verse 8 continues. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Again, it is emphatic. He will be with you. There will be no separation between Joshua and the Lord. He will remain with him and he will not slacken his grip from him. The same words were used in verse 6 and here. The first is Rapha. It means to relax or to slacken. As such, the Lord will firmly have his hand upon Joshua. The second is azav. It comes from a root with essentially the same meaning, to loosen. Thus, he will firmly commit himself to what will come to pass. Therefore, Moses now says, verse 8 finishes with, do not fear nor be dismayed. One of the words is the same as verse 6, while the other bears a close meaning to the other word in verse 6. Like the people, Moses tells Joshua to not fear or be affrighted. He will prevail because the Lord is with him. Nothing can affect the sure outcome that the Lord intends because of it. Be strong and courageous and trust in me. You shall not fail because I go with you. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust completely. Having faith in me is what you are to do. I also had to trust in my God as you are now to do. And so I was strengthened in order to go in. In my going, it was actually for you. So fear not. With faith in me, you are ready to begin. Who is the goer who goes with you? He is the same goer who was there with me. The Lord our God, who is faithful and true, is the one we can trust forever and wholeheartedly. Our second thought, pictures of Christ. Moses is a picture of the law. We know this. We saw that already in verse 2, and we've seen it again and again and again. It is the law that speaks to all Israel, as was noted in verse 1. The law witnesses to what will happen, how it will happen, and it typologically tells us of the greater fulfillment of these things, if we accept the typology. For example, on the Passover, a lamb was killed, and its blood was applied to the doorposts so that the Lord would pass over the people. Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. Do we accept the antitype and fulfillment of the typology? 
If so, then we acknowledge what Scripture says. Israel does not yet accept that. Verse 2 gave us the details of Moses' age. In that, he said he could no longer go out or come in, implying his strength would no longer allow him to be an effective leader. Rather, it was time for his replacement to take over. The law is unable to enter the inheritance. The reason for this is that is not the purpose of the law. Rather, the law is given to highlight sin and to lead us to Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Moses' coming death is the result of sin, the law of which he is given as a type of it. It finds its strength in sin. As such, the Lord said to Moses, you shall not cross over the Jordan. The law, and thus those under the law, have no part in the inheritance. That was clearly seen in the words of Galatians that we looked at earlier while in verse 2. It is why we so carefully reviewed what led to Moses' punishment. With that explained, Moses said emphatically that it would be the Lord who crossed over before Israel. And then using the same words in the same verse and without any distinguishing conjunction between them, it emphatically said the same of Joshua. Here and elsewhere, Joshua, or the Lord, Yah, is salvation, is clearly presented as a type of Christ. As we saw, the same words were used, the same emphasis was provided, and the same thought was conveyed in the two clauses. One referred to the Lord God, while the other spoke of Joshua. The lack of any conjunction united the two in thought as being one. The picture is clear. Jesus, who is the antitype, is obviously presented as the incarnate Lord God. You've got his deity and you've got his humanity. He's the incarnate Lord God. The type anticipates the fulfillment in him. Verse 4 recalled the two foes of Israel, Sihon and Og, to mind. Just as the Lord, through Israel under Moses, defeated the foes outside of the inheritance, so the Lord, through Israel under Joshua, will defeat the foes inside of it. The picture is that the Lord, through the law, will destroy those outside of the inheritance, but that the Lord, through Jesus, will destroy those inside of it. In other words, this presupposes that there are still battles ahead for those who enter the inheritance. As such, the words clearly reveal that salvation and the promise of heaven are one thing, even if they don't come at the same time. When one crosses over the Jordan, meaning coming through Christ, the inheritance is obtained. They have entered the promise. Does everybody understand that? If you have come to Jesus, you have entered the promise. You have received what God has offered. Canaan is the promise. It is typical of entry into the state of salvation. Israel is a template for individual salvation. Hence, it is referred to in the singular. Stated another way, Israel's entry into the promise, having crossed over the Jordan, is a picture of believers going through Christ to receive the inheritance. But there are still foes in Canaan to be destroyed. The picture is clearly seen in the book of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's done. The Lord descended like the Jordan. The Lord died as the Jordan ends. It is in crossing through this that one enters. 
the words through his blood that I just read you from Paul don't just imply death. They explicitly mean death. That's what the words through his blood means. It means he died. Therefore, to go through Christ is to be redeemed. The sins have been forgiven. And it is sin which is strengthened by the law that has been dealt with. Joshua or Yehoshua comes from two words. The first is the divine name of God, Yehovah. The second is Yasha, meaning to deliver or save. Hence, the name means Yehovah is salvation. Joshua was commissioned under the law. Jesus was born and commissioned by God under the law. Joshua will enter the inheritance through the Jordan. Christ enters the inheritance through his own death, pictured by the Jordan, in fulfillment of the law. We enter through Jesus' death as well. That is also stated in the book of Ephesians. In him, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is, here it is, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The inheritance is obtained. Believers are positionally granted the full inheritance, even if they are still living in this fallen world. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, were on the other side of the Jordan, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there is the positional until the actual is received. However, there are still battles in this positional attainment of the inheritance. If anyone doesn't believe that, he is either brain dead or he is just plain dead. These battles are described quite well, and how to win them is nicely detailed in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what Moses was saying to Israel in verses 5 and 6, and which anticipates our battles today. The changes from the plural to the singular were notable. There are individual battles, And there are collective battles. Verse 6 told the people in the plural to be strong and of good courage. It is reflective of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. These and other such words in the New Testament simply confirm that we are in a battle and that we are to be strong, not in and of ourselves, but in the Lord who goes with us. Again, from Paul. 1 Corinthians 16, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. But all of this is first dependent on the Lord who goes with us. As it noted to Joshua by Moses, you must go with this people. The Lord didn't just enter into glory and wait for us there. He first went through the Jordan. He went with us in death in order to bring us into the inheritance. 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He went before us. Imagine that. But Moses says something to Joshua that also finds its fulfillment in Christ. He said, be strong and of good courage. 
or be strong and be strengthened. The words to Joshua apply to Christ. Here's what it said in Luke 22. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. The word angel simply means messenger. That is how Young's translates it. What was the message brought to strengthen the Lord? My guess is it was the word of the Lord. Be strong and be strengthened. In our humanity, we all need the word of the Lord at times. The wonder of the words of Moses calls out for us to look to Christ who has gone before us. It is the Lord who is with us. It is the Lord who died for us. It is the Lord who we must go through to obtain the inheritance. And it is the Lord that we must rely on even once the inheritance is obtained. Until we depart and enter our final part of the inheritance, it is a life of promise that we live. And yet, it is a life of battles we must face. Does anybody here disagree with that? I can't think of anything more true than the fact that we are living in a world full of battles. The admonition for Israel was to remember that the Lord, the Lord is the goer with us and he is the goer before us. If we can just hold fast to that, how much better will we be as we continue on in this difficult world in which we live? When we take our eyes off of Jesus and when we allow our thoughts to get diverted from him, how very ineffective we are. But when we remember that he is with us, we will always, always, always be in the sweet spot. Israel is a group of people. As a group of people, some died in battle. Some never obtained the inheritance. Some wandered away, forgetting the Lord who was among them. We are brought into the commonwealth of Israel by faith in Christ, but nothing promises we won't suffer or die in this battle. However, the inheritance will never be denied to us. Ever. It is obtained. The typology tells what the New Testament confirms. Thank God for Jesus Christ who has guaranteed our inheritance because he has gone with us into it. Yes, thank God for Jesus Christ. What a marvelous lesson. What a marvelous story of redemption we have in today's passage. Everything is telling us that God is the one who is with us. What's that? Thank God Caleb was in the picture. Absolutely. 100%. You just took away my question, thank you. Here, take this and fly it around for a while. Completely threw me off. And he couldn't have read it because I just wrote that down this morning and nobody's been to this but me. You're a very bad, very bad man. Very bad man. All I can tell you is that it is true. Caleb was brought in as well. And Caleb, let me ask you this. What does Caleb mean? Dog. Dog. He's a picture of the Gentiles. Okay. That was my question. Joshua was highlighted in this sermon. Who was the other spy that went with him who was faithful to the Lord? Caleb. And then bonus, what does his name mean? So you get a car too. You get both of them this week. And I didn't even have to ask. I was going to say, now is that one of those that transforms? This, this will transform into a flying car, no doubt. You, you get going fast enough and you go off of a, a overpass, you're going to be a flying car. Yes. So there you go. That's the answer to the question for today, but it is also a part of what we need to close with anyway, because the fact is that Christ went with us. He went with us into the inheritance. He gave his life up for us. What can separate us from God? 
What can do it? If we're in Christ, you explain to me how you could lose your salvation. Okay, these people that teach that doctrine are insane. And so they come up with these stupid questions like, well, what if somebody wants to walk away from their salvation? Oh, chuck me into hell today. What a stupid question. That is a completely ignorant question to even ask. Okay, Jesus Christ died for our sins. We are in Christ. We are not being imputed sins. We are saved if you have come to God through Christ. And so my appeal to you, which I give every single week, is to please think about your eternal destiny. Think about what is going to happen to you the day you die and then make the right decision. Man, we're in Deuteronomy. Think of that, the fifth book of the Bible. Nobody wants to read Deuteronomy, and yet all we have week after week is Jesus and what he is doing for us in Old Testament typology. Praise God for what he has done so that we have a sure word and we can know with 100% conviction that the doctrines that we teach in the New Testament are correct because they align with the Old Testament. Thank God for Jesus Christ, and thank you, Lord God, for your word. Please call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from Philippians 4. It's verse 13. If you can quote that to me, I'll give you another, I'll give, give you this undrank bottle. I want the bell. Okay, no bell. Here it is, closing verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Please, if you're struggling with your life and worrying about, you know, all the things that come against us in this world, keep your eyes on Jesus. My favorite verse in the Bible, the first seven words from the NIV, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If you just do that, all of these things won't bother you. I'm not saying you're not going to have difficult times. I'm not saying you're not going to get angry. These things happen. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus, the world has no meaning. Nothing can come against you in your walk with the Lord. So please fix your eyes on Jesus. Next week is Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 13. He penned out all the things he heard and saw. It's entitled, So Moses Wrote This Law. That'll be our 90th, think of it, 90th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I'm very excited because when we finish Deuteronomy 31, we're going into the Song of Moses. And I don't want to disappoint anybody, so I don't want you to get all excited. I got excited about it because I translated it myself and I read the words. It may mean nothing to you, but I'm excited. So I hope you will be excited and try to enjoy the beauty of what's penned there. I, man, I, I'm just so excited about it, but it might not be really edifying for you, so I don't want to get you overexcited. What a great passage, though. What a great passage is the Song of Moses. I'm still excited, and I finished it a week ago. Okay, quick poem, and we're done. Then Moses called Joshua. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, yes, he did begin. I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, words of my loss, you shall not over this Jordan cross. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you until they are all dead and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og without any haw or hem, the kings of the Amorites and their land when he destroyed them. 
The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them, so you shall do, according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is faithful and true. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people. So to you I submit to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you this promise he has made. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful passage. Eight verses that are so filled with the glory of what you have done in Jesus Christ. And the reassurance that we have as believers He's gone with us, he's gone before us, and he will be with us. You will not leave us nor forsake us forever and ever. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.